Built in the depths of the Great Depression, the Hoover Dam rises over 700 feet along the canyon walls of the Colorado River. Originally named the Boulder Dam, and officially begun in 1933 after decades of contentious debate over the feasibility of such an ambitious project, the dam opened in 1936 as the largest hydroelectric facility in the world. Responsible for powering cities all throughout the southwestern United States, as well as controlling water for flood mitigation and agricultural use, the engineering and architectural wonder has attracted nearly a million tourists a year and stands as a testament to the capacity of a nation that commits itself to great works that they are possible if the will exists. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. Hello, welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century Podcast. My name is Hans Lander. Today I'm joined by two very special gentlemen, uh, Mr. Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. And Mr. Hank Oslo. Good evening. I believe Adam had a couple items he wanted to address before we uh, got kicked off here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two things. Number one, uh, since we moved off, well, not by choice, of course, but since we have been kicked off of YouTube and have found ourselves in the warm embrace of BitChute, much to our appreciation and uh, understanding of a very limited resources company, uh, some people have been saying they've been having a hard time playing the videos in their browser. Unfortunately, there's not much we can do. Uh, we're sort of in the same boat, honestly, when we go to look at the videos ourselves, uh, whether it's us or other people. Sometimes the playback is, is limited. They have a, a very complicated distribution architecture for how they send out videos, and it's kind of a distributed way of doing it. I don't know if that has to do with this problem of no playback, but in my personal experience, Occasionally, you may be able to have more success if you either change the browser itself, change your IP address, which is kind of what I'm getting at. And one of the ways you can do that is either through a VPN, which I understand is out of the reach of a lot of people. Uh, but there's two browsers that do support alternative VP, uh, IP addresses for loading uh, web pages. One is Tor. If you guys don't know about Tor already, uh, please check it out for a lot of reasons for anonymity reasons mainly, but it does spread out the the location of where you're accessing the web page, so that might help. And the other one is apparently Brave has now incorporated Tor, and they, they're running their own uh, exit nodes or en entrance nodes, one of the two. And so apparently it's a little bit faster than Tor, so if you get fed up with Tor, you might be able to try Brave and just go to the, the menu and then select a private session with Tor. That might help. Don't know, uh, no promises, but you know, we're in the same boat with you guys and hope it helps. Uh, second item is 
kind of a big, uh, exciting announcement uh, on my part, at least, but I'm happy to announce it on the show as well, uh, along with uh, Lynn Lockhart from James LaFon's uh, podcast, uh, the Crackpot podcast, and we've had both of them on our show a few times. Uh, she's been working with me over the past couple of months to get a print version of Exit Strategy, uh, Navigating the Decline of the American Empire book out, and it is now available. Uh, we'll put a link to the uh, the purchase location where you can order it and have it physically shipped to you. Um, no way around, you know, anonymity in that case, if you're worried about the company itself having that information. But if you do worry about that, there is the digital version available. But if you want a hard copy, uh, lulu.com is where you can get it. Uh, we'll put the link up. And about the price, uh, we understand it's a little more expensive than some books, but the reason for that is the printing costs alone are taking up a vast chunk of that price. It's $62. And at the end of the day, after, you know, Lynn did all the editing. So we're going to give her uh, a good chunk of that. And then we'll get like $5 from each copy. We're really not making any money in this. We're just happy to have anybody who wants a physical copy to be able to get one. And so I just wanted to get that out there because apparently some people were asking about that. So that's all I had. Thanks. I wanted to make a quick comment. Uh, I think it's come to our attention that some countries uh, might be blocking BitChute or uh, might have uh, certain firewall limitations in place through their various ISPs that prevent uh, adequate access to BitChute or its resources, specifically Australia and New Zealand. Uh, if, if that is your specific problem, um, again, utilizing some kind of VPN um, or utilizing some kind of a browser-based VPN or browser service that allows you to change your IP address and route through a different location uh, might be slightly useful. Uh, there's also the RSS feeds, and we'll make sure to include them again. And um, maybe we'll tweet them out again for people just so that they're aware of uh, what the RSS feeds are. And that's probably the most reliable way to at least get the, the show itself, the MP3 file itself. I understand that you won't be able to get a lot of the work that uh, is put into the slideshow and some of the accompanying graphics. Um, it, but um, that's probably the most reliable way, I would say, for people to actually consume meat of the content, which is uh, just our voices and uh, the audio file of uh, the show. The other thing to try is uh, if you look for a YouTube-DL um, and say a free uh, program that lets you download uh, YouTube channels. Most web video, it's able to uh, download. Um, occasionally, uh, that also doesn't work. Um, and you can try uh, if you just Yandex uh, for uh, download BitChute. There are several sites where you can just paste in the URL and get the uh, the MP4 file down. Um, we have backups of all this stuff. Uh, if uh, you know BitChute itself goes under, we'll find another distribution uh, platform, or we'll just you know host it over Tor or something. We understand that um, it's been difficult to get the show, and uh, we appreciate you guys that are still trying very diligently to attain it and listen to it. Um, we appreciate you more than ever, especially now. Uh, but. Hopefully, you know, there will come a time when we can have a bit more of a robust distribution platform for the MP4 files, for the, for the, you know, the video itself. Um, that time is, is, is just not right now. So we'll, we'll make sure to keep everyone aware if we do end up changing platforms again or something happens with BitChute. Uh, we always try and keep everyone informed very quickly with any problems we might have. So uh, please. Well, it's, it's just, just underscores kind of how difficult this 
thing we're in is, and yeah. this is things are starting to get real. And we already were on another platform, uh, VidMe. If anybody remembers that one, they they went under. I mean, it's just video distribution alone, let alone actually fighting a actual political conflict, war, whatever you want to call it. The the more serious it gets, the more difficult it gets. And we're getting into that stage as as they're cracking down, and YouTube has the resources to do what the big media can do is broadcast out the narrative. And since we don't fit that narrative, we're not welcome there and we're having to build alternatives. And this is what it means to actually have to build your own parallel system in society if we even get that far. But if anybody's having second thoughts, I mean, it's only going to get probably harder. So we appreciate it. We're in sort of an an info war, if you will. (laughs) We are in an info war. They really don't want you to learn about very, very hardcore political topics like the history of the dam or uh, water structure. Uh, yeah, those edgy topics. <laughs> but, uh, How do you build an actual functional civilization without all the uh, the studies departments and liberal arts colleges that they're pumping out? We're, we're, we're coming from, honestly, like what universities used to be interested in probably 60 years ago and then suddenly uh, things changed and it all became uh, everybody goes to college everybody's got to get a degree in uh, trans athletic kinesthesiology uh, and then go work uh, slinging coffee at Starbucks or something we don't like that society we want something better so that's what today's show is about I'd like to kick us off with a, uh, a quote by uh, Interior at the time uh, in 1985. Uh, Interior Secretary Donald P. Hoddle attended a, uh, a commemorative ceremony in Las Vegas, and the commemorative ceremony was for the Hoover Dam. Uh, just the following year, the Hoover Dam would actually officially pay itself off, so to speak, through uh, hydroelectric generation. Uh, for local communities and, and cities in the this American Southwest. Uh, but he he, uh, he had a quote on the dam itself, and he said, um, there was a new era of confidence that was opened up on the part of engineers and others involved to concentrate on the design and engineering of such great projects. Um, the Hoover Dam, when it was actually finished, was uh, in 1935, was the largest dam uh, ever constructed in human history. There were dams that were um, were just as high, or in some cases even slightly higher, uh, in parts of the Pacific Northwest and in uh, Midwest. Very large dams had been constructed to control river flow, um, but this particular dam was the largest, not only to the extent that it uh, had the greatest width, but the most <clears throat> total material of any dam uh, and any project at the time ever created. Um, one statistic that I like to think about is that the amount of concrete that was poured into the Hoover Dam and its surrounding structures and auxiliary structures uh, could create a road that would be uh, essentially triple the size of Great Britain if you created a single straight road. You have to imagine that that road could probably take you from uh, from Lisbon, Portugal, all the way to uh, the edges of Russia very easily. That's how much concrete was poured into this singular structure i think on wikipedia it says it you could drive from new york to san francisco on yeah. the road it uh it, it's a truly um monumental feat 
and Hodel's quote uh, harkened, you know, by the end of, by the eighties, mid eighties, when he's he's speaking about this, is sort of a, the end of an era in the great the great projects and the great infrastructure development of the United States. The completion of the Hoover Dam kicked off a uh, a, a very very interesting period in history that I mentioned on our last show, from roughly nineteen thirty five. Until the mid '60s, um, the damming of America, the damming of American of American rivers, the American waterways, and the development of all of these uh, elaborate bridges and uh, clean water infrastructures and filtration systems to deliver a quality of life to the people that uh, had not existed before in many parts of the country, and to expand the quality of life that had existed for certain places in the country that had already seen a lot of development for uh, at that point several hundred years. Um, the techniques that they developed for this dam ended up being utilized uh, all over the world and, and, and in the United States. Uh, the Grand Coulee Dam, the Shasta Dam, the Hungry Horse Dam, uh, and many more were inspired and were in many ways utilizing a template that the Hoover Dam set um, for not only the actual construction methodology and the actual engineering, but many of the um, logistics and supply chain systems and, and means of organization and management of, of, a, of, a, of an enterprise, all of that kind of went into this broad, almost science of dam construction and water infrastructure construction after 35. <clears throat> and the Hoover Dam um, was very much a, a project of obviously the Great Depression and uh, President uh, Franklin or FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he uh, sought to obviously, I think, as many of you will know from your high school history classes, uh, uh, accelerate growth or to try and create job opportunities and remake the United States. And there was all kinds of um, programs that went on during this time. Um, one, one that I was that I think about is uh, the the family, uh, Johnny Cash, great American singer, his family in uh, rural Arkansas as part of like a practically a colony. And uh, the Roosevelt administration had this one program where they were trying to incentivize people to colonize regions of states that had not had large populations yet. And the, the theory was that you could uh, create all these like um, property pricing fluctuations and you could lower the cost of living, but you could also, you know, the, the idea was that we could also take this opportunity to expand out a growing population inside the United States and bring them to new places. And one of those new places was the American Southwest. Uh, the American Southwest, specifically this part of the American Southwest, in the Mojave Desert in uh, Nevada, was sparsely populated. It was sparsely populated before the arrival of uh, colonial Englanders. Um, it was sparsely populated before the arrival of Spaniards. Uh, the Native Americans who lived there were few and far between. It was really more of a migrational area, people coming through and settling down temporarily. Um, not much was ever really done there because of in, how inhospitable it was. Uh, and the same could be said for much of the American West in general. Um, everything kind of below Northern California and Wyoming, uh, if you kind of draw a straight line or somewhat of a line across those two areas, uh, was very difficult to build anything lasting in. Water was a constant and consistent problem. Um, weather fluctuations were a constant and consistent problem. Um, the soil has always been very rich, very useful, but difficult to manage. 
uh, local wildlife was always difficult to manage. And of course, irrigation, the primary problem of building anything lasting, any kind of civilization, any kind of long-term food production, <clears throat> was also a consistent problem in this region. One area in particular that uh, was of serious interest to Roosevelt and to uh, a lot of business interests within California, who were sort of also primary drivers behind this specific project, was the Imperial Valley. <clears throat> in parts of the Colorado River and its tributary streams and, and, and uh, small rivers and lakes in that area, grew, were all connected in this this large valley and you know, all the way up into central California and um, every, Early geologists in the 19th century and early 20th century knew this region had amazing soil. Soil you could grow anything in. You could grow anything you wanted. You could grow nuts. You could grow cotton. You could just grow standard grass. You could feed your cows, your chickens on it. You could do anything. It just wasn't water. There's no water. The only water they could find was deep underground in a huge network of underground aquifers that are actually now being sort of pillaged because of new water constraints in the region. But there was no way to, to utilize all this great soil and all this sort of uninhabited space that uh, didn't have a lot of the con uh, constrictions of property ownership and, and various um, titles of the time that New England had, or the Midwest had developed, and uh, especially in the homesteading. You could sort of start anew. You could create a whole new agricultural paradise if you could only solve this problem of water. And this process really got kicked off in, I would say, the early, very early part of the 20th century. It was actually Teddy Roosevelt who um, signed what was called the Reclamation Act. This gave impetus to what we now know as the Bureau of Land Reclamation, Bureau of Reclamation, who would end up managing the project, uh, managing the Hoover Dam, and managing many of the great water infrastructure projects of the Great Depression, and then and later on. Uh, they wanted to see specifically how we could tame the Colorado River Valley, how we could contain this great river with a seemingly endless source of water and distribute it to the American Southwest. As I mentioned before, this area was initially scouted and, and understood after the end of the Mexican-American War for military purposes. So early on, there were a lot of battles with Army Corps of Engineers who saw it as a continuation of their interests and in their early scouting, their early development in these areas, and their assistance with uh, early attempts at farming, fighting either fighting off local Indian tribes or helping build uh, rudimentary pieces of infrastructure for people to develop settlements in. <clears throat> Most of those settlements would fail and uh, fail spectacularly. People would die, things would be abandoned. Uh, maybe they would return 10 years later to try again. <laughs> but uh, the Army Corps of Engineers lost the political battle early on. Um, in, in Michael Hiltzik's book, uh, Colossus, there's, there's a great amount of detail given to these political battles, but to, to sum them up, um, Bureau of Land Reclamation has always been very political. Um, it, it was tied into the progressive era. It was tied into the, the times and era uh, and the paradigm, which was uh, basically not only conservationism, but the notion that we should be creating, we should, because we don't have them, we should create these things that we don't have, 
these large federal institutions, they can manage projects holistically because we shouldn't have to rely on um, bickering state governments and bickering county governments or the military to develop meaningful multi-state, multilateral solutions to very big problems like water distribution. <clears throat> and the Army Corps of Engineers not only lost a political battle, political battle early on, but was uh, throughout the next 30 years, continually trying to insert themselves into the development of this area, into the development of the Hoover Dam. Um, they ended up getting sort of a perfunctory role that was just sort of an advisory role. Um, but uh, Pro, the old man who sort of oversaw project, uh, oversaw the Hoover Dam project under the, the six companies conglomerate, um, and under the, obviously, the Bureau of Reclamation, continuously just ignored them. Um, part of the issue was that the Army Corps of Engineers did not believe in the success of the arch gravity dam model. They were very conservative. They wanted a series of interlocking dams along the river to distribute water sort of modestly. Um, and they were coming up with all these. If, kind if of I can jump in for a them. second, that would have dramatically changed the nature of what the plant is capable of doing. Mainly right. because when you're generating electricity, you need head pressure. And if you're splitting it up like that, you will simply not get the electrical output that you have from a dam like the Hoover Dam, which became the biggest hydroelectric facility in the world at the time. And you would not be able to just store the sheer amount of water that it stores in its reservoirs. It would just, it would just simply not work. Um, so many criticized the Army Corps of Engineers for not only being too small thinking, there was a potentiality that it would not even solve any real problem, that you would basically be building a series of dams and, and, and sort of uh, water blockage infrastructure for no real purpose, because it wouldn't solve this wider problem, which is how do we contain the Colorado River and how do we actually utilize its water for productive purposes? Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers was very much interested in how do we tame it just so we can get past it. If we need to get across West very quickly, and if we need water on the way, if we need to, you know, put water on at the time, it would have been basically carts pulled by horses, and then later on, obviously, mechanized vehicles would have been kept trying to carry the water using petrol. Uh, but how? Do, you know, th that was their only concern. They were only concerned with what benefited them and sort of creating this modest project that everyone believed would solve. But on the other end was the Bureau of Reclamation, very ambitious. Had a lot of very ambitious engineers were in contact with a lot of the very ambitious engineers in the private sector of their time and across the country. Um, there were a lot of German immigrants involved in various dam projects leading up to that uh, in the Pacific Northwest and in New England. And uh, they all sort of coalesced around this belief that uh, the arc gravity model, which uh, had already been postulated and sort of thought through uh, might be the best way of solving this this problem. Uh, but it was unproven. Early attempts at it had actually failed and gotten people killed. And no one really knew what the best course was. And they didn't want to take a middle route uh, in, in the early 20th century. This was an era of very of just general ambitiousness. Ambitiousness for, uh, for the sake of being ambitious, for the sake of expanding the greatness of America, that was sort of the operating model behind a lot of the science that was going into uh, development of this planned dam out the Colorado River. And 
1920, you know, many, many years later, after sort of Teddy Roosevelt had set out his vision for what we could do with the Colorado River and plan the early stages of it, in 1922, uh, there was a report called the uh, Fall Davis Report. And submitted to Congress, it basically uh, recommends, or it, was, it was entitled Problems of the Imperial Valley and Vicinity. And it recommended the construction of what they were calling the All-American Canal and a very large dam on the Colorado River uh, at or near Boulder Canyon. And all of the, of the seven Colorado River Basin states, all the American Southwest states, uh, signed on to it. It's sort of unprecedented. The states would get along as well, even at this time, and they would all agree on this sort of large project. The logistics of it were still a very contentious political topic, and that's why this thing kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed uh, for yet another 10 years, practically, um, because the states couldn't figure out uh, who would get what water, how this, the cost would be allocated, uh, who would actually foot the majority of the bill, would it be bad out California? Uh, Californians were, if you read, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation actually has a massive book online you can read for free called just the history of large federal dams they're actually a very interesting book and they note that um uh, for a long time the the real impetus was coming from uh california southern california that their growing political clout um and the, the very large and powerful uh, business interests that had grown very quickly due to like a very low population and ease of grabbing resources and, and utilizing them, uh, was very interested, very interested in this project. And uh, on several occasions offered to foot the bill, or at least foot part of it. So there were the results of this greater political argument, and you can kind of see this still today. I think a good example in contemporary terms would be actually the, the border wall. Um, there's been a lot of argument about how to fund this thing. It seems to be a never-ending political topic. And uh, Eventually, at one point, uh, there was a proposal to create bonds that people could buy, and people could essentially help the American population they wanted, they chose to, could help pitch in and basically buy bonds that would be used to purchase resources and labor to construct this border wall. Obviously, that proposal was killed, I believe, by Paul Ryan in the Congress, and uh, the, the fight for the border wall money continues continued for several years and it shows no signs of really um uh, of the situation being ameliorated well there is uh, a private group doing this now it's called we build the wall.usa or us uh that you can actually privately donate money to on private land they're building a section of it believe it or not right so th this this uh, this intrinsic political problem the united states uh was holding up what was everyone agreed was going to be something very, very important, very, very useful to the future of the country and the future of that region. Well, you know, it's but, interesting. I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much, but th this sort of occurs to me as you're talking about everybody in, is in support of this project. If you contrast that with today, dams and just about anything that has any ambition on it, it would seem, just seems to run into so many roadblocks in the United States for various reasons. Environmentalists, there's people who don't yes. like it for political reasons, there's safety reasons, there's cost reasons. I just don't see anything happening anymore that is on a grand scale today. And it really surprises me 
having grown up in the past, you know, several decades that the mentality was so different back then. And it makes sense given how, how much more momentum things had back then from, you know, the country standpoint, but it's, it's very striking contrast and it's hard for me to fathom that nobody would have objections to it as opposed to today where it seems like there's constant complaining about things of this nature. Right. And I think I was trying to get across that there's a, there's a intrinsic political problem to America that is actually sort of faded now, probably for the worse, but you saw this as early as the Erie Canal, the attempted construction of um, gravel roads across state lines, and that states and counties within states frequently bickered and frequently fought over the most infinitesimal minutia of daily interaction with these planned pieces of, of what you call infrastructure. Um, and part of that might be a good thing. Part of that showed in, in our history a very, very uh, articulate, very, very uh, smart population that was involved, that felt involved and felt it important to be involved in, in uh, the, the deal, everyday dealings of these seemingly boring and sort of background topics. Um, now, I don't think it would be hard pressed to find anyone that cared at that level. People would care more about, uh, obviously, as you're saying, the environmental concerns, the labor concerns, some fucking Native American tribe uh, is mad that we're adding 10 feet to an existing dam because it ruins their local whatever, their local aesthetic. That happens all the time today. And they know they can get away with it too because of the political climate. And back in the day, I mean, on this particular dam at least, they... I don't think they were consulted for one, but number two, they, they actually oh, they, didn't, they they did not give a shit what anyone. Yeah, else. and but they were they actually hired uh, some of them according to again. I, I just read the Wikipedia page. I've been to the Hoover Dam. I, I know more than just that, but well, you know it's fresh in my mind. They hired some Apache Indians to do some kind of stuff with the uh, the mountain climbing. Probably one of the more dangerous things. But uh, it's well, just it's, again, it's just re- such a reversal of the sort of ambition of the country as a whole. Like they're like, well, we're just going to do this, and if you want to tag along. Here you go, but we're not going to consult you. You're not part of the decision-making process. Completely 180 today. So on that point, um, I should say that a huge chunk of the labor force that went into building this dam uh, came out of uh, New England, and they came out of the eastern seaboard broadly. Uh, job, joblessness was so pervasive of the Great Depression in that area, in the eastern seaboard, that people from uh, that part of the country were practically exporting themselves all over the rest of the country to find work for new opportunities, for lower housing costs, for there, lower costs. There are living. quite a few from the kind of uh, hard-hit areas of I want to say the Dust Bowl, but it's it's sort of like a part of it. It's Arkansas and Oklahoma, the Okies and Arkies. The, a lot of those people went out to California as well. Uh, but there there were people who, a lot of them that worked on the dam from there. And this and these issues kind of feedback because a lot of the failures of farms in uh, the Midwest and, and southern United States and just across the United States in general, and kind of coterminous of this depression resulted in huge numbers of people fleeing to the California Central Valley, to the Imperial Valley, uh, to Oregon, to Washington, to parts of Idaho, 
uh, to parts of Texas, try and build again, try new farming uh, and, and try maybe new crop, try a new location, try different methods. Um, and so this, this increased the pressure, so to speak, on, a, on the delivery of a solution to this water problem. How do we get water to these people? Not only is this region underdeveloped in our eyes, but now there's more of them. There's more people here. There's more people who want this water, who are, who are ready to farm, ready to start a factory, ready to build a community, and they can't drink anything. Or they're at risk of being flooded out the next winter storm. How do we, how do we alleviate that? So all of these forces kind of coming together really propels, uh, Hiltzik basically says all of these political pressures and demographic pressures and economic pressures and, and this general malaise that people really wanted to wake up from. Uh, there was a real cultural push to rebuild and to try anew and, and to, to, to make a better life. <laughs> made this project inevitable and made it inevitable in the sense it would happen very quickly. And the federal government, uh, which had been wanting to do it for a long time, you had engineers from when Teddy Roosevelt was still president and, and created this bureau still around, who had been working on designs and, and working on soil analysis and scouting maps and everything and planned supply lines and, and, and uh, timelines and budgets and schedules for this project for 20 years. Almost 20 years, these guys have been just sitting there waiting for an opportunity to do it. And part of that is why it was such a success, I think, in many ways. And Hiltzik makes this point as well, in that the Hoover Dam could not have been constructed. This kind of dam could not have been constructed in the amount of time it was constructed in and, and actually meet it, met its project deadline two years early, practically. With the amount of money it ended up spending, it ended up coming in under budget, uh, mostly because the federal government and the Bureau of Rec Reclamation told the six companies conglomerate that in Crow that if they were a single day late for every day thereafter, they would pay three grand in at the time three grand in fines. Three grand in fines every day would have bankrupted all of them. So it was a pretty clear threat of total bankruptcy ruin if you don't do this in time. Uh, it, it, it's almost like a, like a Sovietization of, of America at this period when we're constructing these federal institutions are really taking over and are being empowered to make companies do certain things, to oversee the project. And you see a real infusion of state and sort of private capital into specific, specific uh, enterprises. And the penalties are so harsh um, and, and the, the, management from the government is so harsh towards these private companies that they might as well not have been private companies anymore. They were being managed uh, in such a way that they would be destroyed and, and all their assets taken if they did not deliver on time, if they did something wrong. Of course, killing people, over 100 people died in the construction of the Cooper Dam and its auxiliary structures uh, was not a concern. <laughs> Labor laws were not a concern. Environmental laws were not a concern. Um, keeping the local Indian tribes and local population was not a concern. Uh, the concerns were, you do this in time, and you make sure you don't spend anything over the budget. Because if you do, we're going to take everything you own, we're going to bankrupt you, 
and you're going to be cast out of the American engineering uh, world permanently. You will be a disgrace. It's a very real motivation. And instead of scaring people away, uh, again, it speaks to this sort of cultural phenomenon as it attracted everyone. Everyone who was involved with dam products or water infrastructure, uh, geologists, all kinds of positions, railway engineers, drivers, all these people were enticed because it, there was a real sense of not only urgency, but a real sense of the, the real risk that this carried. And risk does turn people on. It does, it does make people want to do something. There's sort of an element of human nature, and it was much more pronounced then than it is now. The, the, the notion of real risk of doing this. Not only could you die, if we screw up, we're all bankrupt. Well, there, there's a famous picture of some of the dam builders uh, posing in one of the penstock elements and it's basically just that's a fancy term in dam building for the big tubes that carry the water down to the turbines the power plant and they're suspended over the canyon and they're being held up by these giant you know, hooks and cables and you can see the dam in the background but osha would you know shut the thing down yesterday if that was going on you know in modern times and that was just not a you could do that. I mean, you could say, hey, guys, let's get a great photo. I mean, we're going to show how amazing, you know, we are and this whole project is. Let's get this epic photo as opposed to going through 10 forms in triplicate through all the bureaucracies and the, and the safety hen pecking people uh, that, that run our country today. Again, very, very different. So of all of these, uh, I want to finish point. I don't think I finished, but. If all of these factors hadn't kind of amalgamated around the same time, and if there weren't so many years of planning and hard work devoted to studying this project, um, it's very likely this thing would not have been done in time. And, and those, you know, that roughly 20 year period of just planning, budgeting, and coming up with different models and contingencies, when the project actually started, the Bureau of Recognition handed all of this over. They had done the work for almost 20 years, handed it over to Pro and the six companies and said, here you go. Here's everything we've possibly thought of for this, including the arch gravity uh, design. Here's everything you'll need to know. Here's everything you, you will ever need for this project, if not anything else you, you need to do on your own. Obviously, it does speak to a different era in America when we could perform these feats. But this specific project and the amount of real research and, en and engineering philosophy that went into it uh, had a huge dividends, but was the primary reason why it was constructed as quickly as it was. The other was uh, the, the man who over would oversee this, uh, John Crow, and he was a, a real bastard. And his... his, uh, his his underlings, his employees, you know, upper-level management and engineers, and even down to the, uh, the laborers, um, the drivers, and, and cooks, and everyone hated him. Hated him. Absolutely thought that he was a ter terrible man. He was killing them. Didn't care about their working conditions. Um, when they would ask him to help them build local housing, he created like a shanty town, and then he docked 25% pay from every single worker who wanted to live there. 
he was a real son of a bitch, but he was also probably the smartest damn engineer in the United States at the time. And he was the man that made this project happen under budget and had a schedule. And the federal government let him get away with it, primarily because of the amazing work he did. You can kill, at the time, you could kill over 100 people. But if you delivered something that amazing and that innovative, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. He was never lambasted by the, by the, by the Roosevelt administration. He was never um, brought to court. The media sung his praises and kind of tried to brush under the rug all this stuff about the dead workers. And it, it, was, it was a true celebration of, of greatness and leadership. Of course, today, I think, and I mentioned this in the last show, if 100 people died on an infrastructure project, it would be national news. Um, the entire project would be shut down. The, any private contractors involved would be sued. Uh, they would likely lose their shirts in court. The federal government would probably be sued. Uh, they would likely lose in court or have to settle out, and it, it would be endless legal drama that would last for years and eat up all kinds of press time. And the press would revel in it. And the man who was leading the project would be an outcast in society, basically have to go into hiding. What a difference 80 years can make. When a man like Crow, uh, before he was really, uh, before you know, now he, he's he is sort of a, a, an evil figure. If you, there's a couple of documentaries that are good on the Hoover Dam, and he's cast as a very evil man, very uncaring man who is only ever concerned with uh, finishing this thing with a certain amount of profit in his pocket. And he's not exactly a good character in the Hiltzik book, but. If you look at it in the context of the time, he really is a huge chunk of the reason why this thing was done and why we still marvel at today and why it still works today. The greatest thing about the Hoover Dam is that it's 80-year-old infrastructure that still works and still performs its function pretty adequately. Yeah, there was a big dam uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, I want to say Shushana hyphen something. I can't remember, but it was built during the Soviet Union in the 60s. And this was after the Hoover Dam. This is 30 years afterwards. And they, you know, it's, it's kind of a similar design, kind of arch gravity, very, you know, steep walls of the canyon. And they had this huge disaster. Uh, so it's, it's located in Siberia, the western part of it. So there's, it's very remote. Um, but this was after the Soviet Union fell. It was working. And then this was actually during Putin's reign, I think I want to say about 10 years ago, give or take a few years, where I don't remember specifically what happened, but it was it was like the maintenance was so poor. Uh, and that, that speaks to also just the kind of general lack of consideration they put into things in that part of the world. Uh, and there's also been other disasters that have happened uh, in the Soviet Union, obviously Chernobyl coming to mind. But this was uh, this is a hydroelectric dam. And the bolts uh, that were either missing or rusted out were literally like holding the turbine uh, in uh, on like the deck level where you walk to inspect these things uh, in the power powerhouse. It like fell through the floor and then clear outside and they had to shut the whole thing down and they had to build an additional uh, spillway uh, 
a few years later because they were they were worried about the whole thing breaking apart if they let too much water get up behind it because it was just so poorly constructed. And so it does speak to a lot of the engineering capability that something built 30 years before uh, this Soviet dam was built uh, is still lasting without a hitch today. One of the construction companies that was involved in the construction of the dam uh, as part of the six companies construction was actually Bechtel. And they're still around today. They're still, uh, they're still pretty prominent. They still do projects. And they note that the project was done for about $49 million at the time. That was the, that was the total cost. That was not the budget. The budget was actually much higher. Um, the budget, if projected in today's money, would be over a billion dollars, which was... It was it's huge money today, but at the time the scale of that kind of spending for this single project was unheard of. It was so expensive, and it was one of the things that actually caused a huge amount of problems. Going back to the Army Corps of Engineers, Army Corps of Engineers kept trying to insert themselves into the project and kept using this and 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 uh, publicly worrying about uh, the insane cost and we wasting our money. Is it all going to be worth it? And um, when it was actually budgeted out, you know, total cost uh, ended up coming in. It would be worth about uh, it was at the time forty nine million dollars. At the time today, that'd be eight hundred and sixty million dollars. Still pretty expensive, regardless of how you slice it. You can do a lot with eight hundred and sixty million dollars from a public work standpoint. To spend it on a single dam is obviously kind of questionable, but when you consider again what this dam in particular was going to accomplish uh, and probably the net benefits of the dam, which is opening up, I would say, a, a trillion dollar region, probably in its total valuation and the total amount of capital it's produced since then. Uh, it seems like a very small investment. And that was the logic at the time. The Bureau of Reclamation uh, in the, the late 20s and early 30s, around the time of the dam construction, basically was given a new mission. The Roosevelt administration and the Hoover administration before it had said, your mission is now not necessarily conservationism, your mission is economic expansion. Even before the Great Depression, there was this real uh, understanding that the increasing role of the federal government is to economically expand certain regions of the United States to their full potential and to deliver not only economic expansion, but higher standard of living. Today, it's really hard to say whether the federal government is trying to really engage in what you would really call economic expansion and, high, and creating higher standards of living, but that was the explicit mission at the time. Even towards the end of the 20s, things were still very, going very well for the majority of the United States. The total, uh, the, the total cost makes sense when you consider... Not only the fact that uh, no infrastructure existed in this region, this re this part of uh, in Black Canyon out in the Mojave Desert, this region had nothing. It had no roads. It had basically just like scouting trails, if you want to call them that. Uh, the terrain is terrible. The topology is terrible. The soil and the rock are very difficult to deal with. Uh, the Colorado River itself is unpredictable. 
Uh, any bad winter storm could uh, destroy any temporary routing measures you've taken to reroute the river while you construct the dam. Uh, it was very dangerous work. It was, uh, it was extremely costly, or it was thought to be extremely costly. And no one really wanted to, um, to go with it. But when the six companies took the project, their first uh, thought was, well, this is unlike a lot of the projects we tackled before. Crow had tackled some projects in uh, some dams in uh, Idaho and uh, areas of the Pacific Northwest. They had some similar problems, lack of local, local infrastructure, um, the weather is slightly unpredictable, but nothing quite on this scale. So the first step was to basically construct railroads and rail lines where there had been none before and create a whole network of local rails for delivery of, of cargo and materials, raw materials, uh, rails for actual large trains that were bringing it in from all over the country and all over the world, uh, even importing concrete because we couldn't produce enough of it fast enough to meet national demand and demand for this project or raw materials for concrete from England or from other regions, uh, bringing in people and resources from all over the country, bringing in horses, bringing in iron, bringing in steel, all of it had to be brought in. And some of it was being brought in in its raw material form or barely processed form. So then they realized, okay, not only do we have to create rail infrastructure, both local and, and incoming cargo infrastructure, but we have to create materials processing. We have to create uh, a, basically a concrete, two concrete factories. We have to create uh, a smelting plant for any iron ore or any ore, or any uh, un, unfinished materials, metal materials that come our way that we have to finish. And that meant bringing in the people to do it. And they had to live there full time. That meant bringing in the resources to house them there, to keep them there, to give them the basic things so they could survive and the tools they needed. Bringing in the food, bringing in, wa bringing in water, bringing in just about everything you need. And you have to imagine this is all before the age of real uh, consistent telecommunications, especially out in this area that's super remote. This is before the age of... Uh, uh, of obviously the internet or easy information sharing. This is before the age of computers or real computational technology that allowed you to uh, perform vast uh, numerical calculations, whether from an accounting perspective, from an engineering perspective, from a logistics perspective. Uh, this is all done by hand. This is all calculated by hand. Um, this is using human calculators and, and early slide rules and all kinds of things just to solve this problem of how do we coordinate these resources coming in. And it wasn't necessarily a just-in-time uh, sort of modern uh, logistics and supply chain system or manufacturing. These resources were coming in constantly. There's a never-ending flow, and uh, the orders are very simple. Don't ever stop. Assume that we will always need the same amount of resources until we tell you otherwise. And the only way they could tell people otherwise was to try and either get someone on horseback to Las Vegas so they don't have to send a telegram, um, or try and get someone on a train heading back to tell someone at the at a, at a location in uh, Pennsylvania where steel is being manufactured, we actually don't need more steel. We need less of it now. And this caused all kinds of issues from a supply chain standpoint. But the head of the six companies uh, managed to, to sort of overcome that and still managed to keep it under budget, shockingly, just through really effective communication and, and working as hard as possible 
having people uh, awake at all times of day and all times of night if they had to get on a train or they had to travel very quickly to relay a message to stop production or to change production. All of this had to be coordinated. It was an extremely difficult task to coordinate this um, in, at this time in the 30s. And the construction of the Empire State Building is another good example. If you've ever been to the Empire, uh, the Empire State Building in New York City, uh, if you go do the, the tour, uh, tourist thing where you kind of learn about the, the, the history of how it was built, the, the precise, because of the way New York was structured, they had a whole other problem, which is that there's too much going on. The roads are too clogged. The mm-hmm. harbor is very busy. How do we, you know, how do we not have steel just sitting at the dock all day, not doing anything? How do we get it here in time to work on it and keep this project developing on schedule? Uh, and it required very precise engineering, a lot of intuition, and a little bit of luck. Same thing went into the Hoover Dam. Probably about five to ten percent of it was just sheer luck at the time, and that was just because of the technological limitations of the era. And they got very lucky. Uh, on many things. They got very lucky that, uh, for example, a lot of the uh, material extraction and material production that was going into this project, the managers at Hiltzik knows that the managers and the, the overseers of those plants and those centers were very sharp, very smart guys who were able to kind of anticipate, uh, even if they, they didn't get to communicate quick enough, how far along the project was with the information they were given. And if they had to shift production, if they if they had to slow down or ramp up, there's a lot of real, like, true intuition that really accumulated in the at the uh, second industrial era during the Gilded Age uh, into what a project really needs in order to keep running. Today, you know, there's a huge reliance on just instantaneous uh, information and feedback loops on your supply chain. So you can know exactly what you need to do, where to stop, where to start, how to ramp up production, how to change your production. Um, there's sort of an art that's been lost of that intuition, not only the engineering of the dam, but engineering of uh, the total system that went into how you could actually build this dam. So if I could uh, ask a question and then jump in with some thoughts, how much pressure were they under to finish this on time? Hans, from your, your reading? Well, I told you, uh, or I said, I think already, that um, they were under extreme pressure. And that mm-hmm. the penalty would be for every day late, past right. 19, a date in 1937, it was a $3,000 fine. But at yeah. the time, $3,000 fine would be several million dollars today, which would be bankrupt, <laughs> basically. Um, yeah, we, we, we had that episode with uh, Tom about the F-35 and that thing has taken over 20 years and still not working right. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, if, it's, if it had taken that long to get the Hoover Dam going, I'm pretty sure the Bureau of Reclamation would have just shot everyone involved <laughs> with the project. Yeah. I mean, they, they were not screwing around. They, they, you know, let's say it failed and it had an F-35 kind of failure mode where the production just took that long and it was that ridiculous and there were just constant issues they really would have destroyed the career and reputation of everyone involved. They really would have. They would, you know, Roosevelt would have gone out of his way to to ruin them because it, mm-hmm. it would have been such a colossal waste of money and a colossal waste of political capital. Well, what really impresses me is that the structural integrity and just the overall quality of the dam is as high as it is because 
in my experience, when you you have a, a schedule pressure, people often will cut corners, and that can doesn't always if you're talented, but uh, it unfortunately often happens when people cut corners. They end up paying for it later. And it doesn't seem to have happened with the Hoover Dam, but this reminded me of, and I've already sort of said several times on the show that you know things are different today, and obviously that's a pretty basic statement, but one of the things that um, I would like to contrast this approach with is the, back in the 80s, there was a, in the manufacturing industry, there was a big threat, sort of, sort of like what is happening today from China, less so on the price aspect arena, but more on the quality arena coming from Japan. And in the automotive sector, the typical assembly line procedure in America at the big three companies, Chrysler, Ford, General Motors, was to keep the line moving. So when you said we're going to keep sending the same amount of material every day or every cycle of the delivery uh, to basically put the pressure on the construction people to keep up, that reminded me a lot of what the mentality was in the industrial engineering department of these automotive makers in America. And basically what that translates to is when you're working on the line and you see a problem, you basically fix it or you cover it up and you just keep it going because there's a lot of accounting you know, department pressure on you to keep the volume up, the quantity up, and mitigate costs of slowing the line down because when you stop it, the whole thing shuts down and everybody is not working and they're idling. And the mentality was it's got a defect. Well, the customer can deal with that. What happened though was when the Japanese were doing this stuff, they would give a lot more authority to the production line worker to actually shut down the entire assembly line if they did find a problem because the wisdom of that is that if you identify a problem early, you will not have to pay for it later. And so the analogy in the dam world is, whoops, I didn't pour the concrete right in the middle of the dam. And then I find out later there's a giant crack forming in it. Can't exactly go in and patch the dumb thing if the crack is in the middle of the dam. And so it just impresses me that they were able to finish under budget, on time, and not have any issues. Uh, it's just a testament to the engineering capability. Well, this is a, this is a little nice little interesting fact I was going to bring up later, but you mentioned cracking. Um, so I want to actually, really quickly, I want to convey just the, the sheer scale of this thing. At the end of the project, and this is actually what was always sort of imagined uh, early on, give or take, a little bit, but uh, what it would take to build this. 4.4 million cubic yards of concrete. It's about 5 million barrels of concrete. When you say a cubic yard, like that's that's more concrete than the space that your minivan takes up. Like a yeah. cubic yard is like a shitload of material. And it sure weighs a lot more. Yes. If you've ever had to shovel a cubic yard of dirt, it takes... What, probably about four, six hours, depending on uh, how spry you're feeling. Well, and to give you an idea for how much this thing weighs in total, it weighs about 6.6 million tons. Uh, and that's including 88 million pounds of plate steel and outlet pipes, 6.7 million pounds of pipe and fittings, 45 million pounds of reinforced steel. It took about 22,000 people involved in all kinds of stages of the project to construct, not including all the 
auxiliary levels of manufacturing and processing that went on across the rest of the country to get this thing, not including the federal bureaucracy and workforce that was involved, not including the state government's own workforces who were involved in, in all levels of this thing. You counted all of them, it's probably close to 100,000, 150,000 people in some way, indirectly, directly went into making this project happen. Um, it, it was ex just extreme. Uh, the the level of of cost, not not in financial, but just in cost of resources and time that went into this. Uh, and the dam had to hold two point five um, million meters of I think M three is uh is is what is that two point five M three. M to the third power. I'm not sure what that is. I don't know why I have that in my notes. But anyways, um, let's see, 2.5 million meters of water in Lake Mead. And that would become the biggest reservoir in the history of the country. In the history of uh, the world, I believe, an artificial reservoir was the biggest. Uh, and it, it was planned to produce 4.5 billion kilowatts kilowatt hours a year as its hydroelectrical component so you have to keep that in mind as well that as we're building this massive structure that is going to regulate water flow uh, that already weighs over six million tons we are also building an entire electrical engineering component that is going to process that water and utilize it for power supply, which required a whole nother set of infrastructure to go to these regions of the country uh, that it would end up power like 8 million homes or something like that. Or worth 8 million homes in power. You can divvy that up however you want. Yeah, I mean, the closest <laughs> major city is Las Vegas, and they right. basically admit that they couldn't exist without the Hoover Dam. And what's interesting, and I, I don't remember exactly how far away Las Vegas is from uh, the dam, at least, you know, as the crow flies, but the problem in prior years to this, and I guess they had addressed it by then, but they'd wanted to build dams like this uh, before the 30s, but the problem was the transmission technology was not up to uh, the capabilities as it is today, and actually today's transmission technology in the United States is actually pretty terrible. It's about 1950s grade, and if you go to other countries, you'll see you know better versions of that. Uh, we, we definitely need to upgrade our infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, but the problem of transmitting electricity over long distances is resistance uh, over the line, and you have a, a very steady uh, line loss and efficiency loss when you're pushing power over long distances. And so in order to ameliorate that, uh, they have to step it up to very high voltage. And so when you see warning signs about very high voltage on these transmission towers, they're not joking about that. I mean, they're 10,000 or more volts. Oh, yeah. And... It'll, 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 it'll kill you. It'll oh, kill sure. You oh, sure. And, and then they have to continually up that as it degrades along the way. So that's what substations are for. But, you know, these things didn't exist uh, for the longest time. And so this stuff, even if you built it, if you even if you generate all this electricity on site, it wouldn't be useful unless everybody was nearby to use it. And so that was, uh, I think, one of the earlier versions of this. Now, there are other dams in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in particular on the Columbia River and all that, that do transmit over quite long distances. But I don't know exactly who 
like what dam was like the first to really take advantage of this ability because the, the power for the Hoover Dam, I mean, it goes all over the place. It goes to Southern California. It goes to parts of Arizona, uh, Las Vegas, obviously. So it, it really is, um, you do need all these other components to make it fully useful. And at the time, like it was only in the 1890s that General Electric was formed. So huge parts of the country had no experience with electrical infrastructure. Like electricity being a thing in a lot of areas was still a fairly recent invention. This was basically a space age equivalent. Like this is a promising new technology and, uh, you know, we're going to use our, our high-tech uh, infrastructure to have the massive capital investment required to actually make it available to the general public. Correct. And you mentioned cracking earlier, so I wanted to say that, um, first of all, uh, just a little bit, a couple more figures on just to understand the scale. Uh, the dam, using this arch gravity methodology, dam is 200 uh, meters thick at the bottom and only 14 meters thick at the top. Uh, the theory is that you use the, the weight of the total water you're holding back to help reinforce um, help reinforce the, the structural integrity of the rock around the dam and the dam itself. This was part of the, the, the real resistance to this idea was that it seemed almost too good to be true. Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation had several mathematicians on staff, and they worked out very precise formula that had uh, not been really pioneered up to that point in order to, to uh, boost their, bolster their argument, because they were challenged by very serious engineers who were, um, a lot of European engineers who were consulted went with like thin dam designs and with designs that were not really uh, arch gravity designs, they had very serious concerns about this notion of using the weight of the water itself to help reinforce structural integrity. They just didn't think could, it could you, made Can you explain how that works, so, though? Um, so I'll, I'll explain. So the, basically, the water is held back by the curved face, which is why there's a curved um, And that forces the, the, the total, or as you transmit, transmits the, the water's force uh, the, the to, basically to the, the walls, total right? To the wall, to the rock walls of the canyon. Yeah, that, that, but about sixty percent of the the force, from what I remember, but not yeah. not all some, of it. Some, some, I think it, it is over the majority of the total force. However, you want to calculate that uh, of the, the total water you're holding back time. And uh, the interesting thing about the dam is that it scales. It scales regardless of how much water is being pushed against it. So it's not required that it be near the top. Obviously, with the Colorado River, that's almost always going to be a thing. Just the sheer volume of water that's coming out of it is all is barring some total environmental shift is always going to be very extreme. Um, but it, in theory, and it should work, in that it can hold any amount of water uh, as long as it obviously is not going over the top of the dam and still be structurally sound. Just to, just to clarify in case that that was confusing what I said, when I meant, when I said to the walls, I meant the Canyon walls. It wasn't to the wall of the dam, if that wasn't clear, but, uh, just wanted to 
put that in there in case people are trying to understand this. Because, I mean, it's interesting to me because the dam is, it's, it's an arch. And so the arch is bending into the water, okay? So when you look at the face of the dam on the other side of the water, it's going away from you. It's, it's concave. And so it's convex right. on the side of, of the, the, the lake. And the water you're saying itself is, is kind of hitting that, that ridge and then it's flowing around and then smashing into the canyon walls instead of pushing on the dam further. It's kind of like that, it's like a bullet or something into the water. And so it sort of pushes it away from the dam effectively. Yes. So in order to, to accomplish all of this, uh, the, the, in 1932, uh, after the contracts have been awarded and a lot of the, the uh, funding issues and, and land rights have been taken care of with the states and the counties, um, they first had to divert the river. And this seems like an impossible task at first. Um, in fact, in, in Hiltzik's book, they actually, uh, when they start this part of the project, they almost give up immediately. Uh, because it took some very, very clever engineering to solve this particular part. This is actually something that the Bureau of Reclamation had not fully thought through. So how do you actually divert this water? How does that work in practice? Uh, especially with this sheer volume, and you have to account again for scalability, and you have to account for unpredictability. You have to account for storms, you have to account for the, the, the fluctuations, uh, severe fluctuations that the Colorado River is known for. If you don't, people will die, and your project will fail. Uh, so the, the basic premise is that we were going to dig um, four 17-meter diameter, one-kilometer-long tunnels. One-kilometer-long tunnels, four of these things. We're going to dig these underground, and this is in the 30s. They don't have a lot of the fancy new machines and the hard hats and everything that they have today. They're doing this they got dynamite, right? They got dynamite, and they got shovels, and they got pickaxes. <laughs> And they have some electrically power. They have some electrical power tools. They have some mechanized vehicles that can push rock out of the way, push debris out of the way, and help tunnel in. But these are guys breaking their backs, digging into the rocky ground underneath uh, the the walls of this seemingly unending canyon, uh, just to divert this water away so it doesn't kill everyone something bad. I mean, just to kind of paint the picture here, the Grand Canyon, which is what the Colorado River flows through, which is what forms Lake Mead behind the Hoover Dam, it's all the same system. What that is, is basically it's a giant, somebody took a giant like ice cream scoop and cut out all this rock from where the river is. But go left or right from the river, I mean, that's the same stuff. Like you look down, it's sheer rock. The whole thing, it's rock. It's like a giant oh, yeah, this, piece this of rock. This isn't soft soil. <laughs> exactly. This isn't like you're, you're digging a hole in your backyard. This is this is rock. <laughs> there's there's no way you're basically tunneling through giant rock structure. Uh, it's it's it was insane, and immediately people started dying or being severely injured and breaking their hands, uh, breaking their back cracking their heads open, losing their fingers, damaging their hearing, damaging their eyesight, uh, all kinds of, I mean, right off the bat. It did not take long for someone to die, and it, it took basically the first day for someone to die badly. 
Um, not only did they have to dig these tunnels, by the way, they had to line them with wood and concrete. So not only are you digging these massive tunnels, so then you got to go through the entire tunnel of rock that you've very carefully not only just carved a, a kind of a crude tunnel through, but you've shaped it properly so that you can properly apply a layer of wooden concrete. And you've had to build auxiliary structures within there to properly navigate your way through uh, said tunnel in case of anything, for additional work, for maintenance, whatever. Uh, this alone, as I said before in Hiltzik's book, he makes the point that um, within a month doing this, uh, there were serious concerns of the six companies that this, this thing is not going to come together. This is already too difficult. I've never kind of faced a problem like this, but they pushed on. They sort of ignored the fact that people were dying and losing their limbs and uh, just kind of brought new people in. And they had there not been a Great Depression, likely would not have succeeded on this front because there's an endless supply of people from all over who had nothing to do and nothing to lose, and just needed to find a way to feed their family. Uh, they managed to divert the river in two directions. Uh, and obviously, construction on the project started. Well, what they noticed early on, what they had also not really thought through over the Bureau of Reclamation, was this issue of uh, the total weight of the concrete would start to compound on itself. And if the, the amount of concrete being poured would take too long to cool and set. Part of that also had to do with the, the just the weather of the region. They're constructing this thing. I don't know if you've ever been in this area of the country in the summer, but it's there's a reason why it's inhospitable and it looks like the surface of Mars. It's it you can't live there. It is not meant for sustained human habitation. It is it is hot and dry beyond belief, and it will kill you. Um, so obviously the concrete won't even cool and set properly. And this would eventually lead to cracking. This would lead to air bubbles. This would lead to compounding pressure. And uh, the dam might seem structurally sound at first, but will obviously then crack under its own weight and fall apart. The concrete is not set properly. Uh, so they, again, another sort of engineering marvel that came out of this was uh, they basically had like a, a giant fridge machine almost, and it produced over a thousand tons of ice on a daily basis. And they're able to incorporate this into what they call quick cooling concrete or quick setting concrete, which I never was really this before the invention of air conditioning. Uh, basically, yeah. So how do they make the ice? They knew there was a way to make, I mean, fr refrigeration had already existed. Yeah. And I think yeah, this, this is before the invention of modern air conditioning, which uses I'm just wondering if there was a different technology chemicals to, okay. produce, to produce airflow the way you want. But uh, they, they could make ice very easily. There were ice machines, and production of ice was pretty widespread at the point. Okay. Uh, and it's just about compressing a certain amount of water through an electrical device at some cooled, artificially cooled temperature and pressure, and then you. You make ice. Um, so they were able to basically, as they were uh, setting this concrete, infuse it with ice to rapidly cool it uh, and make sure that uh, not only would the weight uh, not be an issue, but that the, the heat, if it was especially during the construction of the, the spring and summer periods, 
would not basically leave the Congre in sort of a weird, um, viscous state that uh, wouldn't really set properly, would obviously crack later on. Um, and as you mentioned, that the guys who were the, like skiff workers and that they, they scaled down on like 200 foot ropes and they were propelling across and they were working on the sides of the canyon. Um, these guys were actually given huge amounts of hazard pay. These were probably the best paid, some of the best paid laborers at the site. Uh, they had nice living conditions. They had uh, their pay, I believe, was not actually docked. They had for their living conditions. A lot of these guys were professionals at this. They had done this at other dam sites. They had experience with this sort of thing. And um, they were highly sought after. They also had a high mortality rate, a high injury rate. Uh, and thus, they were basically tasked with something very simple. We had to smooth out the size of the, the canyon where the dam would be placed, the actual uh, pillars of the dam would be placed. Uh, to do that, you basically have to run along the sides of this canyon in all directions and remove what they were calling weathered rock. Rock that was loose, rock that was are disintegrating, rock that was sort of pressure. So they terraformed this particular part of the landscape to uh, a level in which it was rock that was super old and uh, had been compressed and compressed and compressed over hundreds of millions of years into such a dense state that they couldn't even, at some point, continue drilling into it effectively. Uh, it, was, it was too difficult to do from that sort of angle and, within, and that pools at the time. And that was at the point when they would realize, okay, this part of this area is fine because our, our drills are no longer working. Our, our pickaxes are no longer working. They're basically... Uh, dulling themselves on the surface of this uh, unscratchable surf uh, rock that's built into the side of the canyon. And at that point, under that kind of pressure, rock sort of folds together and becomes almost a singular material. All the air is practically pushed out. So, you know, over this might have started many hundreds or billions of years ago as various amalgamated pieces of stone that were sort of set on top of each other. But over time, weathering and just sheer pressure had forced them together into almost a single cohesive material which you could tip off and take you know, chunks of, almost like um, chunks of metal or chunks of, uh, of, of, uh, of like petrified wood. It was very odd that, that they were making a lot of these geological discoveries while they were doing this work, sort of trying really understanding um, how rock is, is really pressurized and formed over time into these uh, great foundations that were holding this canyon up to begin with. Uh, the whole reason this thing hadn't collapsed on itself a long time ago, just due to weathering and the river itself. Uh, and then they had to take this foundation and reinforce it with grout. They called it a grout curtain. And... Uh, they basically drilled these large deep holes up to 46 uh, meters in and filled them up uh, with cement grout uh, along with the lining of grout in order to basically stabilize as an added precaution, stabilize the, the, the canyon walls that they were building off of. So the, the surface of this region had been thoroughly terraformed by this point in the project. It would never be the same again. So many, so many of these man-made materials have shoved into it that uh, 
if anything ever happens to the Hoop Dam, likely the walls of that canyon will probably stay around forever, barring something insane on a you know, geological standpoint, just because of the human work done to permanently reinforce it. The structure of the Hoover Dam will probably fade and crumble in a couple hundred years, but those canyon walls are going to be up forever just because of the work that was put into as added precaution. This part of the project was not necessarily needed. It was not planned for initially, um, but they wanted to make extra, you know, take extra precaution because there was a real risk that, let's say, in 20 years, if this region develops the way we think it will because of this dam, if we didn't take those added precautions and this thing fails, millions of people are going to be affected. A lot of people are going to die. People are going to have their standards of living decrease. People are going to move. The whole region is going to collapse. This dam goes under. All the farming is going to go away. Uh, and despite all these extra precautions taken, all this extra engineering, uh, all these innovations in engineering, they still managed to come in under budget and ahead of schedule, which is probably the most amazing part of the entire Hoover Dam, is that they were able to pioneer dam building for the rest of the American century, 20th century, uh, while delivering something that was actually cost-effective. Typically, we associate R&D now and sort of experimental projects like the F-5 as being cost sinks and difficult to justify from a funding standpoint because they do eat up a lot of money and they often go way over budget and they take way too much time. This project was um, you know, just through a lot of luck and through a lot of uh, external forces acting over several uh, decades at a certain point, able to do something that I think a lot of modern engineering projects simply couldn't solve at this amount of time and, and couldn't deliver on, not only in just uh, adequacy and performance and, and length of performance, but setting the standard across the world for dam construction, for water management, in a way that um, no one ever really had thought of. Uh, so concrete really isn't poured in first until 1933. And uh, the, the process from there is not, uh, despite some things I've pointed out, is not um, that that peculiar. Uh, the, the dam sort of proceeds the way that the Bureau of Reclamation had always assumed it would. It starts following a very monotonous schedule, and uh, the resources come in, they're processed, they go out. Now that a lot of the auxiliary infrastructure has been created, uh, the project actually goes very smoothly. People die. Um, a lot of the interest in Hiltzik's book goes towards like the livelihood of uh, the workers themselves. And all of these shanty towns, they get created. It's sort of an interesting look at what happens when you create these kind of worker communes or these uh, sort of uh, makeshift company towns. Uh, all kinds of fighting and looting and uh, charges of infidelity and families dying and families leaving and uh, kind of all kinds of little drama that end up uh, sometimes impacting the, the work project and managers of different divisions had to step in and resolve just personal disputes in order to make sure the project was done on time and uh, it was engineered in a sound way. Uh, bringing in this many people, thousands and thousands of people of all, sh of all shapes and sizes and from all regions to, to work on this particular thing in such a hard and 
difficult time for normal people in general was uh, to feed onto itself. You know, from a, from a personnel management today, I think a lot of the methods that were used to keep people in line would be uh, obviously very illegal and would probably result in a serious uh, problem for your company, not only in just allowing workers to be killed uh, sort of uh, casually, but the way they were treated in general. At one point, uh, uh, well, I think in 1934, um, well into the, the construction of the dam itself, uh, Crow decided that he would uh, start creating intra-company competition. And he was uh, taking certain divisions of certain types of, uh, of laborers or professions who were involved in parts of the project to compete against each other. And whoever won uh, for some metric on a given day would be given some very, very small amount of extra I don't know, recreational time or, or food or whatever. Uh, there wasn't a very big carrot that he was, uh, he was enticing. With, but it actually worked. Um, I've been kind of critical of this idea in the past of forcing pieces of your company to like compete against each other for no reason. I think it's, in the modern sense, it's very detrimental. It seems to kill companies. Sears is a good example of a company that implemented this starting in the 90s and really shot itself in the face spectacularly with it. Um, but I think that the personnel, the type of personnel management that Pro and his guys were engaged in made it impossible for there to be kind of that um, bitchy and pretentious competition. It was more of a sheer competition of willpower and actual manual labor. On one day, the competition was so intense that uh, a one team managed to pour 8,000 tons of concrete in a single day, in a single workday. 8,000 tons. And you have to remember that the, most of the pouring of this concrete, again, not very mechanized. They're using pulleys and their ropes and barrels and buckets for huge parts of the project, especially at the upper levels. Where they don't have advanced machinery or advanced ways of delivering concrete through uh, any mechanized format to certain locations on the dam. It's just pulleys and ropes at the higher levels. These guys are manually pulling up huge barrels full of, of just concrete ready to be set in place and then actually setting it in place. Um, truly, truly uh, kind of a sign of the, the quality of the average laborer at the time and what was expected of them. Yeah, it's, it's a real job. I mean, I've, I've laid concrete down and the stuff is heavy and you do have to do it right because you're basically... It's like you're baking a cake, effectively, in this example, especially, because it has to be put down within a certain time frame. It has to be mixed correctly, so the mixture of the water, the aggregate, the cement, all that stuff has to be correct. Uh, and it does need to cool, and the impossibility of the, the size of this project making the cooling estimated to be over 100 years if they'd just done it in a continuous pour uh makes the the lay down very important so what they're effectively doing is they're they're laying the concrete like you would like a driveway almost in stages and then they have to let it set if i'm not mistaken then they put another layer on top of that so it's extremely labor intensive because these guys are going over this stuff 
within each section. I don't know if they're having to skim it so it's it's uh, it's smooth on the top, but that's also another big job you have to do in concrete. It's not particularly complicated, but there is an art to it, and you have to do it correctly again because if you get it wrong, it's too loose, it's runny, doesn't it doesn't have the strength anymore. Uh, and then if you have if it's too dry, it cracks. So you really do have to do it right. And given how many times they had to do that and the fact that it hasn't had problems, uh, it's just more examples of how high quality this work was because it had to be done over so many times. The more times you do something, the more chance there is for errors. So they, they did a good job. And I don't know if there was quality control involved in checking things that they had to redo things, but um, it's it's impressive. Uh, you know, in, in some way, uh, I don't I don't want to demean uh, laborers today, or, uh, or or infrastructure workers today. Not not at all. Um, it's not their fault. I think I, I know where you're going with it this. Does, but, it does you know. it does speak to a, a a higher standard? I think was held, and part of that has to do with it's cultural. It's it, it was different. cultural, and, yeah. and there there were a lack of of things going on that. Now, namely unions, um, are not nearly as empowered. I mean, had there been a, any kind of attempt at unionization, I think mm, bro would the shot. Unionization today is not an issue in construction. That's why so many Mexicans are led into the country. But it is. But it is an issue in public work projects. Hundred percent. Okay. I'm not I mean, okay. in infrastructure and public work projects like California, yeah. Caltrans. Yeah, 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 that's true. It, yeah, that's it's true. prohibitive to do anything large scale in the state of California anymore. Um, but what I was, I was sort of thinking was that, you know, like one of my grandfathers did a lot of this work and, you know, he had my, you know, he had kids, uh, and it was okay to do that. And that was your craft. Like you're a craftsman today. This is, this is looked down upon this stuff and it's a cultural shift and the people who do it are basically chosen on the basis of price. And of course that was still a big thing back then, but you could still reasonably tell society and a woman in particular that this is what you do for a living and this is enough. Uh, so you could kind of command a, a certain level of respect for that and you wanted to respect yourself and you took a little more pride in the, in what you were doing as a, as a laborer because this is what you were doing. You're a craftsman. And so you are a Mason worker and this has nothing to do with, you know, the Freemasons, you know, for a, for a moment at least, but just an example, because this is what, you know, that's called, it's masonry work when you're putting bricks down and you've got mortar and things like that. And so concrete is kind of an extension of that. These people did this and this is all they did. And so you were brought in as a specialist and it just is a different thing today where people are basically atomized, they're chosen you know, because they were 3% less than the other guy and experience. Yeah. Okay. We care, but you know, honestly, we're under so much pressure that price is really what we're going to determine everything on. So it's, it's just a different pace of things today. And I think there was, even though this is obviously a high pressure project, I think they had the luxury to design in the beautiful art deco architecture in the lobby, as you were mentioning last episode and the same thing, the empire state building and the Brooklyn bridge and you know, the golden gate bridge and you know, all, all these things. I mean, there, there's actual like beauty to them. And that is, in my opinion, it's gone away. It, it, it that sort of to be exchanged for lower costs 
and better looking profits on a spreadsheet that honestly just in the span of time nobody gives a shit about you know people want to look people visit these places people go to the hoover dam because it looks amazing they don't go there because it has x amount of concrete pour they don't care they they're it's they're swept away by the beauty of it is what i'm getting at in um i have an example of kind of what we're talking about in 1931 uh before even the first inch of concrete had been poured for the dam itself and they're still building a lot of the auxiliary infrastructure to deliver cargo and to actually build much of the site that would go into the dam. Uh, there was a kind of an attempt at a labor strike. And uh, there are all these uh, labor leaders from uh, our good old friends at the industrial workers of the world. Uh, we know them now as being very obvious uh, and very well-financed Soviet plants, uh, especially well into the 30s and 40s. Um, but they, uh, they decided to rabble rouse and cause problems. What was interesting was that six companies and, uh, reclamation, Bureau of Reclamation, uh, the government, federal government, I mean by reclamation, uh, told them to fuck off. That both basically agreed on, oh, we have no interest in whatever your problems are. We're going to get this done. Um, Elwood Mead was this kind of one of the big honchos over at the reclamation at the time expressed the federal government's position. And he said, uh, the workers are impossible. And, uh, the present wage on Hoover dam is considerably above that of the surrounding region. And then once they broke the strike, they broke it pretty quickly. Uh, they got a bunch of local, more local guys, or I say local, it's kind of a stretch, but people from Nevada, namely workers who were in Las Vegas and other regions, and they brought them. And uh, they weren't going to clamor for higher wages, and they were just happy to have a job. And the strikers basically found themselves without employment, and no one gave a shit about them, especially the federal government. Speaks to a time when the federal government, would, you know, at this particular time and throughout this project, was much more concerned with actually the overall benefits, sort of a cost-benefit uh, scenario in their minds. You know, the cost of some striking and pissed off workers and some dead workers is, is probably worth it. What we're talking about potentially happening when we get this dam working and, and when we develop this region thoroughly because of it, this dam working. It's a question that you have to really ask yourself. I think in, I don't like to deliberate too much on this aspect. Of it. It does it or it does bear out real philosophical quandary, I think, for normal, uh, normally functioning people to, to really consider what is, the, what is the cost of something that can improve the lives of millions and, and really develop your country and set a standard for the world and achieve true industrial greatness and beauty. Is it worth 100 people? Is it worth 150 people? Is it worth some broken laborers? And is, is it worth some skirting of of uh, labor protection laws, and is it worth uh, ignoring of concerns of your workers to deliver on something that was so important in the long run? Maybe that's you know ultimately what the Hoover Dam comes down to on a philosophical level. The other end of the Hoover Dam on a, on a philosophical level is really uh, what was it about this era? I tried to explain it, and Ilsek tries to explain it. Bureau of Reclamation try to explain, but they don't really capture it. No one's really clear what was it about this era that 
allowed for this series of great works to be done. Who were the, these Americans that existed at this time that really felt it was a, a higher calling and a true work of beauty and a well, true opportunity? To, all these to things were use. built in the Great Depression, and that was a particularly difficult time for people. And I don't know if it was out of desperation or a desire to achieve something other than being incredibly despondent, uh, probably a combination of that and, and wanting to, you know, try to have a renaissance of sorts and also the willingness to try different things and be more bold uh, when things weren't working. I would, I would put those forward as, as likely reasons. Uh, in, um, in the 40s, Boulder Dam, as it was known, actually, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people don't know is that uh, initially the project was called Boulder Dam. And when it was completed, uh, that was what uh, FTR named it. It was much later that it was actually renamed. 47. Uh, yeah, 1947, that was renamed the Hoover Dam. Um, and that was done out of uh, respect to Hoover, who was really the, the progenitor and sort of the early mover of this project and um, you know had it not been for him it might not have gotten going at the exact time it needed to i think there was some uh, uh, there was some recognition of that in, in naming some, some people you know, felt as though that they should name it the roosevelt dam but there were already a roosevelt dam there were already several pieces of infrastructure across the states that had been uh, dedicated to roosevelt either uh, long before his administration or uh, long after his administration or during his administration. It's one of the few things that actually bears the name of Herbert Hoover, uh, who's sort of regarded as a failure of a president. I, th I don't think really because of his own fault. Just uh, Now, I, I really get angry at people who pin all an entire country's problems on like one man. I mean, sure. Like if he was a dictator and he had that much power over every mechanism of society, yeah, maybe you can make that argument, but for God's sakes, I mean, this is the United States. Like the president is effectively a puppet and bankers and industrialists and international forces have a lot more influence over things than the president. And FDR tried to fix that or address that or change that, however you want to interpret it. But it was, Basically, this guy, Hoover, he was an engineer. He went to Stanford, I think. And basically, he he was like, uh, well, um, I don't know what, we, what we're going to do. But he, he basically was like trying to do public works. And FDR got a lot of credit for that. But it was actually Hoover who was trying that. And it actually didn't help. And it was effectively the Second World War, which basically like brought the country out of the economic uh, low low state of production, but and we've we've talked about that before, and it's still debated today as to what the cause of the depression was. But to say that it's his fault is is really scapegoating, in my opinion. So I think we should kind of wrap up here and talk about sort of the the, the long term effects of the dam. Hiltzik's general thesis uh, is that, uh, and, and and it's in his. It's on his, his book, and it, it, the subtitle, it's The Turbulent, Thrilling Saga of the Building of the Hoover Dam and uh, the, the Construction of the American Century. And 
in some ways, uh, his his overall belief is that the Hoover Dam not only set the stage for huge water projects across the states, but it uh, it basically allowed the growth of not only the American Southwest, but a particular part of the American Southwest, Southern California. And there is an admittance by Hiltzik that Southern California would incidentally come to dominate much of the cultural landscape of the country, especially increasingly in the 20th century. Much of that um, might not have been directly possible uh, without the construction of this sort of somewhat far-off dam out in Nevada that was uh, doing something that seemed totally, totally uh, independent of the, the daily life uh, that would develop in California. His belief is that uh, because California now had this new source of water, other sources of water and, and other resources were able to be diverted elsewhere more adequately. And this allowed for the general prospering of the state from an agricultural standpoint, which allowed the growth of the state, which eventually allowed for the growth of industries that are sort of unique, that were unique to California. You know, the, the entertainment industry, parts of the finance industry, obviously the technical industry, all of that, in his mind, traces back to the construction of this particular dam. And really the building of a, of a standard worldwide. And America was able to export its engineers and its consultants, and its project managers all over the world in the Cold War to build these projects what was learned not only in the, the yeah. initial design of Mistake. the initial phases <laughs> of, of, the early, of the early dam, but the actual implementation of what was learned after it and troubleshooting a lot of the problem. We were able to send that all over the world and expand American influence and expand American power uh, just because of what we learned through this, era, this kind of five-year period. Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff around dams because they're perceived as truly they're I mean they're obviously humongous and so they're they're very visible visual uh, visceral symbols of a country's capability and during the cold war and after world war 2 there were a lot of competitions between the the NATO ally allied countries, predominantly the United States and the Soviet and Chinese uh, groups for dam construction. And there, um, there were, there's, there's many of these, but you know, the biggest one probably that comes to mind is the one in Egypt, the high Aswan dam, I believe it's called. And it's, it's a massive dam project. It's a, it's a different design. It's basically just like this big strip of earth that goes across the Nile and creates uh, a, a giant dam facility. It's much bigger than the Hoover Dam. Uh, but it was originally, I believe, there was probably some Anglo advisors, maybe some Americans, and then effectively the Soviets took it over. And the Soviets helped construct that. And there was a similar kind of bid you know, in China to get Soviet expertise to build these very great works of engineering, and some of them didn't work, and then there was a so Soviet Sino split, blah, blah, blah. It, it, it gets complicated depending on the geopolitics of the time, but these were huge symbols of sort of like national might and kind of prior to the space race, this was one of the things that the kind of different powers of the world were using to demonstrate their capability. And it's interesting in China today, the largest to my mind, it was at one point, uh, it's been finished now for a while. So it's possible that 
maybe in Brazil, they built another one. I, I don't think so though. I think the biggest dam to this day is the three gorges dam in China. And they built it across, uh, one of their rivers. I think it was the Yangtze river, not the yellow river. And it is a gigantic project. And if you listen to the people who were, when it was still being built, talk about what it meant to them as a Chinese national, they talk about it like people in the United States used to talk about the space program. I mean, it was considered like, this is, I'm so happy to be going to work to participate in a project that demonstrates, you know, the greatness of China and what China can do. And we just don't have that today. I mean, people don't know history. They don't have any concept of what this this was like, but these are big deals. And it was a big deal in China to build this thing. And it was very controversial because they had to move probably over a million people out of the, the valley that was going to get flooded. And it, you know, has a huge amount of environmental issues. There's some engineering problems they, they have too with silt silt building up behind the dam. So it may not even be, you know, a, a good move, but it was it was very politically driven project in China. And it just it's it's again it's another contrast with the, the malaise that we're living through. It's like the 1970s again in the United States. Like we just don't have that national willpower to accomplish anything. We can't even build a stupid fence on the southern border. It's it's really embarrassing. So th- this this is just uh, an, a good example of how you how your nation is even, even capable of like organizing anything. Like if you can't even build a, a stupid uh, fence, you know how are you going to do anything else? So it's, um, it's great that this was done and it's, it's very important that people place it in the bigger context of things too. It's not just a piece of engineering. It is, is a work of not only engineering, a bit of art, but it's also a symbol of the ability of a nation to harness itself and its will and its abilities and its energies towards a shared goal. And when a country can't do that, you've got problems. The, the dam and the, the success of it had a lot of these um, socio-political effects. And it gave a lot of credence to what, uh, I think, a general direction and its success sort of bolstered them, namely that the federal government could now really get involved in what were believed to be municipal water supply problems. Um, and uh, an electrical power generation was now considered not only uh, something that the federal government should be working on and could work on, but top priority. Uh, and it, it really, and this is something the Bureau of Reclamation also uh, talks about in their, their book on this, that it really entrenched uh, the, the, the interests of Southern California business owners and farmers, and uh, later on Central, Central California, Central Valley farmers with the, with the California state government and with the federal government. Um, farmers and the federal government had already been sort of slowly uh, working together, especially in the, the era of the Dust Bowl. There was a great deal of subsidization and real cooperation. Agricultural studies had really become a federal concern. And there was a lot of, as I mentioned in our agricultural episodes, a lot of federal infusion of, of grants and research money into the agricultural sciences. And now, because they had... Uh, worked on this project together and that the real impetus had been driven by uh, a lot of agricultural concerns and to begin with uh, the feds and, and farmers big farmers really felt comfortable tackling things together in the era of um, sort of political stigma around cooperating with this large federal structure and not doing things on your own had sort of ended 
because of a, how, what a great success this project was. Uh, I want to close with a small passage from uh, Michael Hiltzik's book, kind of in line with what you were saying, Adam, and just um, what we've been talking about in general. In the United States today, building of great dams has fallen out of fashion. Their effect on the environment, their cost, their fallibility, and their lifespan limitations due to aging and the silting of the reservoirs, a phenomenon reduced in Lake Meeb and not eliminated by the creation of reservoirs upstream, have all guided society to seek out other ways to harvest and conserve that most precious natural resource, water. Still, the question of whether Hoover Dam could be built today is fundamentally unanswerable. The movement to preserve America's wild rivers is powerful but it never had to confront a river with as much exploitable potential as the Colorado. Dams are products of their eras as well as makers of new ones. Many of the obstacles and objections that would be raised against the Hoover Dam today were to a large extent inspired by the Hoover Dam's construction itself. In the end, speculation on what might have been is just that, speculation. <laughs>